the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You are driving home, no doubt. Lots of hustle and bustle and traffic all around you at the moment. But I want you to kind of focus for a moment, if you would. Picture your most idyllic spot to escape to. Maybe it's a small mountain cabin overlooking sun-kissed lake by summer and snow-capped mountains by winter. Perhaps a Spanish-style home with red-tile roof looking out onto the Great Plains with wild horses roaming about. Yours could be a waterfront view from a private beach surrounded by seagulls, waterfowl of every description, and the occasional passing fisherman. Now imagine for a moment such a spot, not just a getaway or a dream spot that you would hope to someday visit, if not read about, but rather a place you call home. Susan Walters calls such a place home, and we find out why inside the pages of a new book called At the End of the Ferry. Susan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I must tell you, for most readers, no doubt, they look at your book and they begin to get drawn into the pages of your day-to-day life experience and must think, you know, this is either the fulfillment of a retirement dream or a lottery (laughs) winning. (laughs) Oh, it's just pretty special. You have spent your life as a professional writer. You were in the real estate world for quite a number of years. You've been in the hustle and bustle of of big towns with big names that we would all recognize. And now you've been able to kind of unplug from all of that and, in many respects, not just see nature for what it is, but I think at the same token, see God for who he is in all of this. And I have to wonder, as as your story tonight unfolds, first and foremost, people think about the quietness of the sea and watching the sunset and hearing the sound of the seagulls as they fly in and out and, and whatnot and have to wonder, well, wait a minute now. How in the madness of this day and age that we live in do you unplug from the clutter of the Internet, cell phone, text messages, and 55-inch widescreen TVs? Is this really possible? It really is possible, and it's truly a dream come true for me. And I was a big city girl for a long time, and we live in a small town. We still do big city things and have responsibilities, and... It's a smell, a noise, a sound. It's really touching nature and, like you said, getting in touch and being still and being closer to to the Lord. It's very, very special. Your book, At the End of the Ferry, really walks us through day-to-day life in your home that has, in so many respects, almost served as a magnifying glass to the wonder of the simplicity of life. What's that experience like on a day-to-day basis? It is truly a joy, you know, when you have not for 17 years, 17 summers, I had not gone barefoot. You know, I mean, you know, you get, like you said, into the hustle and bustle of life. And it's nice to 
take your eyes off of the computer screen and just focus on what's outside and just the random acts of, I would say random and deliberate acts of the Lord and what he shows you through nature and wildlife and gardens and just a small northwest town. Give us the snapshot if you can. You're, you're up there in the Pacific Northwest, Puget Sound area for those that might be familiar. Maybe some people have had an opportunity to, to head up and visit the San Juan Islands. It's a spectacular part of the upper portion of the west coast of the United States. Mm. But your, your little hamlet there, tell us a bit about it. Paint the picture. Well, it is um, 90 feet of waterfront on the Puget Sound, and it is Woodlands Garden and just nature. I mean, we even had a bear in our yard, but, you know, I mean, we're close to town, but you get the wildlife and the nature, and we have eagles, and they eat off of a stump in our yard, and we have surprises every day. It's calming. It's peaceful. It's also wildlife. I mean, there's there's some wild things happening, too. So um, it's just fun taking in the oysters, the clams, the salmon. You know, we cook what we grow. We can get clams right off our beach. And it's just really a special, special place. Your place and the experiences that you share inside the pages of At the End of the Ferry strike me as as being celebratory of the the finer things in life, uh, being surprised by God, as you say, in so many delightful ways. And I, for the benefit of listeners, there are paragraphs where Susan talks about what happens when a seagull lands on your porch. Now, for most suburbanites, Susan, we wouldn't know it if a bus crashed through the living room. And yet you were able to stop for a moment, freeze a snapshot in time, and stop, and I would imagine just look at the wonder of the behavior. And I have to think for a moment, as you're surrounded by all of this beauty of God's creation, how can you but not stop and say, wow, God, what a wonderful, awesome God you are. It truly does make you be in awe. Just to be still and pay attention and have seeing eyes and touching, I feel very, very fortunate. I highly recommend people wherever they live just get in tune to what's what's out there around them. It could be a yellow jacket that falls asleep in a foxglove, you know. Um, it could be a chipmunk, you know, the tree trunk traffic. It's a joy to just pay attention to. I just think these are gifts from God to us. Has this been a life-changing experience in the sense that getting away from the hustle and bustle of the noise and the traffic and being able to, again, realize that the big traffic jam is that the squirrel had to stop (laughs) to let the snake slither by, and it took all of 10 minutes to transpire. I mean, I I realize not all of us can have kind of the on-golden pond experience. I I remember that one scene, you probably recall if you saw the film with Henry Fonda and and Catherine Hepburn when she talks about the color lilies are in bloom again. Such a wonderful (laughs) opportunity. Was this kind of a life-changing experience for you then? It was. It was It was an absolute dream of mine. We had vacationed up here for years and years. Sometimes I would cry when we had to go home because I just, I loved it. I just saw so much that just spoke to my soul. I would say it definitely changed me in that I wasn't a high-profile job. I still had to work and make a living, and I still hit the wall on some things. I mean, even though I got to live in this small northwest town, but it definitely made me a more peaceful person, definitely brought me closer to the Lord, and I treasure this experience in this world. I just feel very, very fortunate and blessed. 
If you've just joined our conversation, Susan Walters with us tonight. We're talking about her delightful new book called At the End of the Ferry. It's an opportunity to really kind of escape from the madness and get reconnected with the simpler, finer things in life. And in many ways to recognize that even as we often in day-to-day living as we're heading to and from work and stopping the kids off at uh, soccer practice, going by and picking up uh, groceries at Safeway or Costco and getting home and paying the bills and the water heater is leaking in the garage and, you know, all of that stuff that we go through that at the end of the day, sometimes we need to make an intentional decision to disconnect from that. Step away, as Susan suggests, maybe walk out into the backyard and just contemplate for a moment the honeybee busying its work around the blossom of a tree and recognizing the interdependence that those two have with each other, that the tree does not bring forth fruit save the pollinization job done by the honeybee, and that, in a sense, the life is of of that fruit tree is dependent upon the honeybee as much as we, oftentimes not aware of God's presence, but nevertheless must depend on his presence for very life itself, our very breath, every single day. To pause for a moment and ponder the wonder of the ability to inhale and exhale, and the joy that that brings. All inside the pages of this new book, and we're going to talk more about life at the end of the ferry with Susan Walters as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Truth be told, I could just sit and listen to that for the balance of my life and never complain. Susan Walters getting just such an experience detailed inside the pages of At the End of the Ferry. The book, by the way, is available on the web. You can check it out at christianreading.com forward slash S Walters, W-A-L-T-E-R-S. Or you can order the book by calling toll free 866-909-2665. That's 866-909-2665. As we move back to your story, Susan, I would imagine there must be times when there's this sense of God sort of through nature vigorously shouting, I'm here, I made all this, and I love you. Do you feel like that at times? (laughs) Absolutely. It's pretty incredible. And it's hard to describe, but you you know it in your heart, and you would never want to give it up. And by the way, Craig, I have your constant comment ready with two lumps of sugar and some lemon. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be right there. (laughs) It is definitely showing me how God is omnipresent. He's there. He's there. He's in nature. It gives you a peacefulness, and it allows you to be still and know that He is God. It's um, really, really a treasure. When you walk out on your front porch and you're surveying, kind of taking in everything around you, do you have time, Susan, when you wonder, how can an atheist be an atheist? And I ask that question because you you look at all of this, and, and to me, in so many ways, it shouts God's glory and God's presence. Absolutely. We had a butterfly bush and never had one of those before, and the the spider ate the butterfly. You see these things and you say, this just can't happen, just man didn't do this, you know? And it's really more than you can comprehend, and sometimes I don't have the words for it, but that's why I journaled it. I thought, I have to tell this story. Every day I have to write down, because every day 
the Lord is showing me something that is so spectacular and so miraculous and that only he could do. And it's definitely brought me closer to him. What about the town, too? I would imagine as much as this has been kind of a life-changing experience for you to turn off the, the din of the madness and allow God to have his way. Are people different, too? Do you see it affected in the lives of people around you oh, as well? absolutely. And they love to talk about nature. They love to talk about wildlife. If they saw a great blue heron nest or they saw an osprey get kicked out of a nest because the eagle wanted it, you know, they'll, they talk about nature. They talk about wildlife. It's just very common. It's just... Very casual. Um, the people no, no, are, you're not going to tell me people do things like bake cookies and rolls and bring them <laughs> piping hot over to your house, are you? Absolutely. You know, very giving, very into each other and neighborly. And they bring me bouquets of flowers they grew in their garden. You know, I bake um, homemade cinnamon rolls and the neighbors know about those. And they know about my granola chocolate chip cookies. And we um, share things or blueberries or raspberries. You know, when it's the season, we take them to each other. And it is a fun, small town. It's special people. It's um, Santa Claus rides on the fire truck through the neighborhood and throws candy at the kids, you know, <laughs> at Christmas time. And it has a lot of uh, very, very special things. Must do a lot in terms of renewing your sense of hope for this country, too. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. It's uh, people care about each other. You know, these people care. They get involved. They're not out in the boonies or anything like that. I mean, we're a half-hour ferry boat ride from Seattle, so we're right near the city. They know their neighbors. We get together as neighbors. We'll have um, dinners where we go one house to the other, and we care about what's going on in the world, and we care about what's going on in our town kind of see this this circle happening here where you get away from the madness the outdoor grows bigger and as it does so it ends up amplifying the voice of god now you get closer in your relationship with him and then after a season the outdoor gets smaller and friends and people and the things in life that really matter get bigger do they it's definitely about values it's definitely about loving your neighbor as yourself to treasure one another and care about one another, and then then you care about the bigger picture, too. So many of the chapters, and I'll mention to listeners, this is an easy read. It's a delightful read. It's one of those reads where you pick it up over the cup of coffee or tea or two or three. Uh, you, <laughs> you really fly through page by page, put it down, and then set it aside for a day or two, and then come back and say, you know, I need to get away again. And you pick up the book and you start, and every chapter leads you into something new. I've read the book through, and then in preparation for our conversation today, started to go through it again. And I was struck, mm-hmm. you talk in there one point, I think it's somewhere along the month of August or, or September, it's, it's getting into the fall season, and you talk about a squirrel. And I thought, <laughs> what an escape for those of us in the big city, where the biggest thief in the neighborhood doesn't have a rap sheet a mile high, but rather, in your case, has a, a pile of acorns a mile high, you know? <laughs> this squirrel actually took the tomatoes I was growing and dried them up on our rooftop, you know, to <laughs> eat them. You know, know, I I don't know. It's it's just fun seeing uh, nature do its thing. It is a mental vacation, definitely. And in fact, an attorney friend from Seattle told me that it's really kind of caused him to just, you know, stop and pay more attention to what's going on around. And And when friends and family come in from the big town, Seattle, to visit, are they astonished after a while there at your home, Susan, that that flowers have names? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, they really do have names. I mean, that that came from the nursery with that name, you know. I mean, they love to come here. Even my brother and my four nephews and nieces and his wife live in Seattle, and they love to come over here. It's a different world. It is a slower world. It's a beautiful world. I get calls from North Carolina relatives and friends from Tennessee from asking to come visit and they love it. It's it's refreshing. It's very special. I feel very, very blessed. I, just hearing you describe it, I, I can smell mulling spices <laughs> in the apple cider on the stove. <laughs> You're right. And you and you replaced that stove, I understand. I understand that you had a little visit from the fire department. The old uh, <laughs> yeah. oil stove finally finally gave up the ghost, so to speak. You still have, you know, you, you, you talked about water heater leaking, things like that. You know, you still have real life things happen. And yeah, the fire department came and that old stove had to go. Your heating system up here, by the way, is really special. You know, wood burning or little potbelly stoves. One of the things men that have read my book like is the story about the egg man, that we go to an egg ranch to get our eggs, and a lot of people sell things honey. So we go to their house and get our honey, or we go, of course, farmer's markets, which you guys have down there too. But this egg man, he lives down this windy road past two ponds, and it's always something exciting in those ponds, Siberian snow geese or waterfowl or... Today I, I saw, I couldn't tell if it was a coyote or a fox, actually, but this egg man, and he's got an old refrigerator, an outbuilding, and it functions as just an old refrigerator, and we just go help ourselves, and, and we went down there, and we got our eggs, and the dormer window of this old brick house opened up upstairs, and I see this man in his plaid pajamas leaning out the window, and he said, are there any eggs? Are we out of eggs? And we said, no, we got them, and he kind of laughed. I think he went back to bed, and we didn't realize it was before 6 in the morning. I had been writing all morning, early morning and night, and didn't realize the time it was. And we just have experiences like that. Well, the fact that you can inter- interact with people in that kind of a fashion, you know, kind of pays tribute to to an older and simpler time in America, a time that most of us thought had kind of slipped through our fingers like the, the sands going through the hourglass. And yet, what a delight and relief to know that, that places like this still exist, and they still exist here in America, and people like Susan and Walters are able to write about those experiences and share them then with all of us. And, and I think in many respects, beyond just Susan, your reflection of life on the Puget Sound and and the ability to hear and see God in in so many ways maybe is not so obvious to the person in the you know uh, traffic lines, smog clogged city streets that we have in, in the urban areas. It's been for you, I would imagine, an opportunity to almost kind of evangelize the word that God is still alive and well, and His creation all about us shouts His glory. Absolutely. Definitely a simpler life and definitely values that I think that loving him and loving our neighbor as ourself, that's the greatest command. And we're, we're really able to do that. And people see it. Katie, who wrote on the back of my book, is a young woman I've been mentoring. And she, it's really, you know, changed her life. She knew the Lord, but she really wants to walk closer with him. And she's got three little boys and she's, she's a, actually a meteorologist in Phoenix, Arizona. And It definitely has an impact. It does. It overflows. It definitely overflows. That's my hope that the book will bring joy to people, help them to see that even in the tough times, and there are tough times right now in the economy and people are losing their homes and things, and that it will really bring them closer to the Lord and um, help them to see what's really valuable. And, you know, as you point out, oftentimes the, the greatness of the wonder of God's love for us is not in the castles built by man, but might be as simple as stepping out in the backyard and looking at the interaction between, uh, you know, the bee and the tree, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and just be able to witness God's love for us 
firsthand in things that we oftentimes look right past, don't we? Absolutely. Just the peacefulness of mind and soul. And I I know in quietness and confidence shall be your strength is one of my favorite verses. And I just think um, to have a quiet and peaceable life is very rich. And it doesn't have to be money or riches. And it can be a pot of petunias on your little patio. For all of us that would like to be able to get away and to reconnect with God, I think this in, in very simple ways accomplishes that. The book, again, is called At the End of the Ferry. And you can get more information about ordering it by calling 866-909-2665. Again, 866-909-2665, or online, as I say, at christianreading.com forward slash S. Walters. Now, many in the audience will know your husband, and I'm, and I'm fearful to let the cat out of the bag only because the phone will be ringing off the hook with reservation requests. <laughs> so uh, we sure appreciate, though, Susan, you taking some time to uh, share your story and your experiences with our listeners here tonight in Northern California, and most delightfully to, in a sense, uh, open your heart and your lives and your home and the bounty of God's created world there in the Pacific Northwest uh, inside the new book. And I just urge folks, you look to get away, boy, here's an easy way to do it that'll get you away and get you back to God at the end of the ferry. And Susan Walters, thanks so much for the time, Susan. Thank you, Craig, so much. Take care. Always a delight. Take care now. And again, I remind you, the book newly published by Zulon, you can get it online at christianreading.com forward slash S. Walters at the end of the ferry. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is a nation that occupies headlines on an ever-increasing basis. In fact, one of the major trading partners with the United States, particularly for technology. We might be surprised to find out that almost anybody these days that calls a service center for information more than likely will have that telephone call answered in India. It also, to the San Francisco Bay Area, provides one of the largest numbers of folks coming to the United States to work in the technological field on HB1 visas. And yet, for as much as we know about the nation of India, it remains a continent of 1.2 million people shrouded in curiosity and mystery. Joining me today in studio is the president of Mission India, Dave Stravers. Dave, welcome to the conversation. Hey, it's great to be with you, Craig. India is an amazing continent. Uh, For anyone that has been there, it is a nation full of sights and sounds and everything from extreme poverty to extreme opulence, thinking of things like uh, the Taj Mahal, for example, And, and, and a nation that perhaps more than anything is changing more radically on a day-by-day basis than perhaps any other nation in the world. Why is that? Well, no one knows exactly why, but uh, certainly when India came into the international economy in the early 1990s, uh, that was part of the big social change that started happening in the country. And what we've noticed, those of us who have been traveling the last 30 years in India, noticed that at the same time the Holy Spirit was doing some remarkable things with the Indian people generally, who for centuries have been very resistant to almost any kind of gospel witness outside of just a few small pockets of Christians in India. And now, for the first time, are are open as they have never been open since the coming of Christ. So the explosion that we've seen there has not only been economic and technological, but most certainly spiritual. And it's interesting because it's a bit of a dichotomy. Mm -hmm. 
India is probably one of the most spiritual nations on earth, and yet not predisposed towards spiritual things much as we would think of it in a Christian context. Yes, Indian Indians are very spiritually minded. They're very sensitive to the invisible uh, powers around them in uh, in ways that many other Asians, in fact, and certainly Westerners are not. And actually, Indian believers, when they come to Christ, also uh, bring with them some just remarkable spiritual gifts. Uh, Indians know how to pray like no one else that I've ever met around the world. And so um, actually all Indians pray. Uh, people will tell you every Indian, well, maybe there's an exception here or there, but there's 175 million Muslims that do their prayers, and there's uh, almost 1 billion Hindus who pray every day to one god or another of the millions of gods that they claim. So when when the gospel comes to this place, you don't have to convince Indians that God is real. Uh, the question is, which god? Who's God, uh, and who's this Jesus that you're talking about? Let's speak to that point for a moment, Dave, because I can see, as many are familiar with, bringing the gospel into an area where there is a spiritual vacuum. For example, we saw a tremendous thrust into evangelism in places like the former Soviet Union, following the fall of the Iron Curtain, late 1980s, I think, Romania the first to fall, and then we know it kind of went like dominoes. Certainly China has been an interesting example of that, into which we can bring the good news of Christ into a spiritual vacuum. But here, you don't have a spiritual vacuum in India. You really have sort of this this mishmash, uh, claiming more than 330 million gods, and it isn't unusual to go to any community and find a Hindu temple there where there might be at least locally 10, 20, 30, 40 different gods. How challenging is that in terms of them bringing in the news of yet, in this case, another god from an Hindu perspective? Well, uh, actually, when it's one Indian witnessing to another Indian, it's not challenging at all. It's very easy at this point. Uh, that's one thing that, that, that God has been doing in India. Uh, someone will say, well, uh, they get to know a Christian, and they talk about their needs, and the Christian will say, well, we pray to Jesus, and the Indian will say, well, how do you do that? Uh, there's a genuine curiosity on the part of most Indians regarding that. And so prayer to Jesus actually is perhaps the number one evangelistic tool in India. Mm. There's constant power encounters. Now, there's not a spiritual vacuum, but there is great turmoil and I would even say despair, a kind of hopelessness because of uh, the, you might say, the theology or the beliefs that most Indians have grown up with regarding uh, just the the hopelessness of, of of improving their lives somehow. You know, the teaching of karma and reincarnation, uh, really those beliefs have to do with no change. And from a spiritual standpoint, too, isn't it a, a new concept from a Christian perspective in that the vast majority of gods that they would worship in India, there is a sense of doing so out of fear. Uh, in fact, I think the term kowtowing, Uh, has Indian roots in talking about a sense of wanting to appease the gods. So now when you interject into the conversation, this other god, who isn't a god that comes to bring a message of fear, but rather a one that brings hope and forgiveness and personal relationship, these have to be fairly mind-boggling new concepts then. It is mind-boggling for an Indian to say, this god, Jesus, who created the world, came to love us, to give himself up for us, to sacrifice himself for us, and to grant us a gift of eternal life. This is mind-boggling. 
it's too good to believe at first. And uh, praying to this living God and receiving answers, powerful answers to prayer to this living God who loves you, uh, this is very compelling. And that's why uh, there are literally millions of Indians coming to Christ every year right now. Where do you see some of the most significant growth? We've seen examples of cases where not just Western-style democracy, but Western-style economics comes in. People get a taste for technology and a better life, and so they sometimes get absorbed by a sense of consumerism. Has much of that happened with the the economic changes in India? Uh, the vast majority of Indians, of course, are we would consider to be incredibly poor. Uh, 350 million who earn less than the absolute poverty line, dollar twenty-five a day, and 900 million who earn less than $2.50 a day. If you earn $3 a day in India, you're considered middle class. So in a country where uh, the cost of food, uh, medicine, clothing, uh, it's less than here, but not that much less than here. So uh, many Indians will spend more than half of their daily income just on food, just to try to keep body and soul together. So uh, health needs, uh, just basic physical needs are are incredibly intense for Indians. And then there is uh, the social needs. Um, how do I put this nicely? Uh, there's con- constant conflict in Indian families, in Indian communities, conflict between castes, conflict between genders. There is extreme oppression of women, uh, the plight of women in India, uh, uh, we're only just beginning to see the tip of the iceberg with the stories we've heard about the rapes of women, uh, the infanticide of uh, newborn baby girls. Uh, young girls are not highly valued, and um, men beat their wives, and so many women actually resort to suicide because they live lives of, of quiet, hopeless despair. So the, the the social needs and the physical needs are just so intense. When a Christian comes and says, there's a God who loves you, who cares about this, who can actually deliver you from this despair, uh, that is a very attractive message. Pretty fertile soil. So we're talking then of the economic and technological growth that's happened in India over the last decade and a half, two decades. Much of that then has really just touched the top tier, the top fifth of the population. So well, you're still right. looking at a nation that economically at its core yeah. is in, it remains in pretty dire straits. Yes, and you have uh, consumer price index inflation has been hovered around 10% for the last 10 years. Food inflation has hovered around 20% for the last 10 years. Per annum. Per annum. Wow. If you are in a high-tech industry and your salary is going up 20% per year, and many people's salaries do go up 20% per year, uh, you can you can deal with that. But if you are a common laborer, either in a rural area or pulling a cart in a city and earning $1.50 a day, and you've got three kids to support, it becomes impossible. Dave Strabers is with us today. He, of course, is the president of Mission India. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special in-studio guest today. He is the president of Mission India, Dave Strabers. Dave, just before the break, you made reference to some of the 
social turmoil that goes on in India. We've heard the stories about, for example, abuse against women, things of this sort. Uh, you talked too briefly about some of the, the sh- social friction, the economic friction, rather, within the country. What about the religious friction? Um, you make reference to the fact that not only is India one of the most populous Hindu nations, but also in the top perhaps five countries for a Muslim population. How much friction do we see taking place yeah. between those two religions along the continent? Yeah, some people claim that India is the top Muslim nation in the world with 175 million Muslims uh, rivaling Indonesia and Pakistan. So India has an incredibly huge Muslim population. That is, the Muslim-Hindu relations are the number one overriding political concern in India. And the new elections, the national elections that are coming up next May, uh, this is the one issue that is going to be at the top of everyone's mind. Uh, the the uh, the opposition leader, Narendra Modi, for the Indian Nationalist Party called the BJP, is very infamous for being a Muslim hater, uh, someone who believes that India is only for Hindus, and uh, the best thing that could happen is if all the Muslims would go to Pakistan and uh, all the Christians would go somewhere else. Uh, that's the official political stance of the BJP party, and this party could could possibly win that election. Uh, there's been a tremendous uh, overriding charges of corruption against the, the party in control, the Congress party, the secular party, and the economy has not been doing that well in the last uh, year or two, and there have been other, other problems that have caused some people to say the BJP could win this election. So Muslim-Hindu relations become very violent, people are killed, and it wouldn't surprise anyone to see hundreds or thousands of people killed on both sides of this conflict. If that change takes place or this friction continues leading up to the elections next spring, uh, into that powder keg, how how challenging does it make Christian ministry then? Christians uh, will be victimized by either side, but especially by the Hindu nationalists. Uh, Christians are very worried about the BJP prospects. Uh, what will happen is uh, this: the Hindu nationalist, uh, we might say their culture, their teachings will give encouragement to all of the little anti-Christian groups that exist all over the country that would like to stop the growth of the church, that would like to intimidate workers and evangelists and converts. Five of the states of India already have anti-conversion laws, and uh, this could be a tremendous impetus for other states to implement anti-conversion laws that would would tend to put up obstacles to uh, either Hindus or Muslims receiving Christ. We, of course, historically have seen um, state-sponsored obstacles in other parts of the world, and yet in spite of all of that, the gospel continues to flourish. Do you see enough momentum in the growth of the church today at the grassroots level that in spite of maybe organized opposition up to and including institutionalized or government-sanctioned opposition, is there any way to stop that train from rolling down the tracks? Craig, nothing can stop that train. (laughs) I'm happy to tell you uh, the main reason why we have persecution of believers in India today is the extremely fast growth of the church and the reception to the gospel on the part of the general population. It's, it's the minority, the political power brokers, the Hindu extremists, the religious establishment in, in the Hinduism. These are the people that are afraid of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're afraid because they see the openness now in the average uh, India household, in the villages that once were so uh, 
hardened against any kind of uh, Christian work and now no longer are against it. So this is going to continue, and I don't think that uh, laws are, are going to stop this train from going. There's also a degree of pretty significant measurable transformation that you were mentioning to me off the air. For example, in the components of outreach of what Mission India does, uh, going in and addressing felt leads in an area, for example, such as literacy, uh, is having a significant impact. And I would imagine anyone that comes into that environment that is able to produce significant measurable transformation is, is clearly not only going to gain some attention, but also set down some pretty solid roots. Yeah, Mission India has an adult literacy program that can bring a totally illiterate person to fifth grade uh, reading and writing and arithmetic level in one year. <laughs> we and, need to get you stateside yeah, maybe to set up a couple of programs. It's, it's an That's amazing phenomenal. program. It works so well. It works well because the volunteer teachers come from local churches and they love the people they're working with and we have a really good uh, system of accountability and reporting. And this program is in such high demand, we c- we just simply cannot respond to all of the of the requests we get from villages and communities who want this program. there In any given year, there are three or four times as many requests for the program as we are able to respond to. There's something unique, too, in what you're doing in terms of the presence of Mission India in country, and that is that there is a very strong partnership with the local church. I mean, this is, in fact, largely driven by nationals, is it not? Yes, we have no expatriates living in India. It's all national run, and in the country, it's entire, 100% collaborative. So we're not planning Mission India churches or winning Mission India converts. We're helping local churches all over the country in every state uh, from literally more than a thousand different groups of people that we help with their ministries. Do you find that national cooperation creates stronger, healthier than local growth, more sustainable growth? Uh, There are so many little organizations in India who God has called to raised up to work in a little area, but they they have no backing, they have no contacts outside their region or maybe even outside their city, and all they need is a little bit of help some training, some scriptures, some materials, uh, an organized program that, that works. And so this kind of cooperation is extremely powerful when you have uh, different groups coming together, bringing their skills and combining them to reach a local village or a local slum in a city. Uh, it works in- incredibly well. From a partnership standpoint, that, of course, raises a big question. When you're doing so much that's kind of the, the grassroots operation then, it always raises questions about, well, what of accountability? If I'm partnering, for example, with Mission India, how do I know that the dollars are actually going to make a difference? What kind of accountability is built in or a system of checks and balances? Yeah, we've been doing this uh, for quite a while, and our accountability reporting is the number one value for our staff and our partners in India. In fact, uh, one of the first things we teach to workers and their supervisors is to hold each other accountable, not only for the activity of the workers, but also for the objectives. So we know exactly how many people are enrolled in literacy. We know that last year 86% of them graduated and were able to pass that fifth grade exam. Uh, We know exactly what percent of them uh, became Uh, Christians. We know exactly what percent their income went up, 56% increase in income last year. Uh, 
we track these all very carefully, and uh, we have staff all over the country that do this. So it's not just growth, it's sustained growth yes. with the checks and balances so we can see the improvement that's what's happening nationally, not only in terms of the headcount, so to speak, uh, but also in terms, too, of the transformation side of what the ministry is doing. Yeah, we call it SROI. You know what ROI is. Mm-hmm. Every business knows what is so ROI this is, the is. Spiritual this return is on investment. Spiritual return on investment, like and we define what are your spiritual objectives, and we know what we invest in each uh, place, and we know what the spiritual return was. And it also helps you when you're evaluating your program, trying to improve it. When you're evalu- evaluating the partner or the workers that you're training, you have a certain benchmark, a certain standard that you know is reasonable to expect, and. Uh, and frankly, the Indian leaders of these groups love it. Uh, they discover uh, that their capacity for ministry is even greater than they thought mm-hmm. when they finish one of our programs. And certainly knowing that they've got the support and that there's a sense of accountability. You know, it's easier to yeah. stay on focus and on message yes. if you know that you have somebody, a higher authority, so right. to speak, to whom you have to report eventually. That's right. And very important, Craig, is that this is not an American-run ministry within India. This is an, an Indian-run, national-run. Uh, the Indian workers are the ones that set the tactics and the strategies that have designed the programs, and we give them a lot of help, a lot of assistance, but it's theirs. And uh, there's, no, there's no foreign face to this program. Very important in India that this is an, a, a program run by Indians for Indians. And at the end of the day, one that is transformational in nature, life-changing in a spiritual standpoint. And a fun, I think, way for people to get introduced to the work of Mission India. Um, on your website, which for the benefit of listeners is missionindia.org, you have something called My Passport to India. Uh, take a moment, just give us a quick snapshot of that, if you would, Dave, because I think it can take listeners on an exciting adventure that are either not too deeply familiar with what's going on in India today, the opportunities and the challenges, but then, too, the dynamic work that's being done with Mission India and your partners in country. Well, yeah, Craig, you you started off by saying India is a high-impact place to visit. You can actually visit India through our website. We have a number of uh, small video segments there that illustrate life in India as well as the programs of ministry in India. Right now, there's a new series called Lost in India. Uh, You can just log right on, and and the series is designed for children. Uh, Specifically, it was designed for uh, homeschool families, but we found that uh, parents uh, everywhere, they love to watch this program with their children. They're little little exercises and to-do things to go with the video series. You watch a series of eight videos, and you get introduced to the country, the culture, the people. Um, there's a lot of humor in the program, and you also get to see what God is doing in a place where the name of Jesus is not known very well. The nation, as we said at the very get-go, is a paradox in some ways. There are curiosities at, at so many levels. There's a certain mystique and, I think, allure about India because of the culture, its history, the religions. Uh, and, and into all of that, see the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ step in partnership with the local church, which, again, uh, down through the years that Mission India has been working there, how many years now? Well, more than 30 years. More than 30 years. Right. Um, has a demonstrated track record of providing long-term, measurable transformation. Transformation not just 
at a community level in terms of addressing felt needs, such as the literacy program that we talked about a moment ago, but most importantly from a a mission gospel um, viewpoint, um, spiritual transformation. If you'd like to get more information about the work and ministry of Mission India, again, I'll point you to the website, missionindia.org. That's missionindia.org. And if you'd like to be able to literally travel to India without the hassle of airports and customs and all of that, and without even having to buy an airplane ticket, then my passport to India might be a great way to see an incredible India that you've never imagined. On the web at My Passport to India, on the website at missionindia.org. Dave Stravers, thanks for dropping by and giving us an update. Thanks, Craig. It's great talking with you. Dave Stravers, president of Mission India. Again, details on the web at missionindia.org. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.